All rise. The Honorables, the Presiding Chief Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Uh, we have one case for argument this morning, and y'all are all ready. Um, I'll introduce our, that's okay, I don't need it. Um, our panel today, I'm Chief Judge Donna Stroud. To my right, we have Judge Rich Dietz. To my left, uh, Judge Valerie Zachary. And um, like I said, I think we're all ready to go. Uh, I just want to mention, because it occurred to me, I should probably mention this to attorneys, not that you're going to misbehave or anything, but we're all now you know, streaming all of our cases live on YouTube. So um, we are, so that is a thing that we do now. And uh, all right, and we're ready <coughs> to proceed. And uh, did you already uh, get your time for rebuttal set up? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Um, uh, good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Sterling Rozier with the Office of the Appellate Defender. I represent Mr. Rogers. I've already asked. Uh, I'd like to reserve five minutes mm -hmm. of my time. Um, Your Honors, in this case, uh, an employee of the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office asked a Superior Court judge in New Hanover County without probable cause for an order directing any and all cell phone providers, regardless of their location, to turn over Mr. Rogers' location data, regardless of where he was, where his phone was located, where the location data was created, cataloged, stored, or prepared for delivery, and regardless of the location of the person who was supposed to comply with that order. Um, and the order authorized, among others, the United States Secret Service and the Nebraska State Police to assist. Um, and again, it did this without probable cause. Uh, the order... Oh. Excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt you so, so early. Uh, the question I've had the whole time, what does Nebraska have to do with this case? Uh, I haven't a clue, um, Your <laughs> Honor. I, I think that would be an interesting question for the state. Um, but partly because of that and because of the other issues that I hope to address, uh, the order exceeded the authority of a North Carolina Superior Court judge, and it was invalid and void ab initio. But even if it wasn't, even if the judge had the authority to order this search, in this way, it wasn't based on probable cause when it needed to be. Um, to address the authority, but of course, feel free to steer me wherever you want. I know there's a lot in this case, but um, under North Carolina law, superior court judges have no authority to order searches outside of our state. Our constitution provides that the jurisdiction of the superior court is statewide, unless otherwise provided by the General Assembly. And to take one example from our statutes, superior court judges are only allowed to issue search warrants to be carried out throughout the state. Now here, the order claimed to be authorized by federal law and our state pen register statutes. And to address the federal law first, um, it's uh, 18 U.S.C. 2703, the Stored Communications Act, um, or the SCA. And as the state, I think, suggested in its brief, the SCA was designed to protect data has sort of limited exceptions for when electronic data carried by a service provider can be disclosed. Uh, but by its own terms, when it says who can order that disclosure, it looks to state authority, at least when we're talking about state actors authorized to do it, it defines the people who are allowed to order those searches. 
um, in terms of what the state law authorizes. Um, federal law cannot and, and does not here, at least under the SCA, uh, expand the authority of state actors when that authority is designed or sort of set out, excuse me, by, by our state constitution. Um, state law, not federal law, creates and limits the powers and authorities of superior court judges. So here, the order exceeded the authority of the judge um, in a number of ways. Again, it ordered the production of data without any geographical uh, limitations. It ordered every cell provider I can think of just about to turn over data regardless of where they're located, um, regardless of where the data itself is located. It doesn't tell us where any of the providers are located. It doesn't tell us which one of them has Mr. Rogers' data. Um, and to the extent that Mr. Rogers took his phone out of state, the one actual piece of information about location that we have was that his phone traveled out of state and communicated with towers located out of state to create data that was then presumably transmitted from those towers to a third party, the carriers in this instance, somewhere, um, which was then transmitted by some other person to Detective Wink. And so the only real location that we know was that this data was created out of state, at least in part. And there's simply nothing in our statutes that authorize this type of jurisdictional overreach. One question I had is how to understand what it is that, so are you, you're not, are, are you arguing that this, there's some sort of impermissible extraterritorial reach to what North Carolina did here, or are you just arguing the statutes didn't authorize the state uh, to do this? Um, I think it's both. I think because the statutes don't authorize it, it is an impermissible territorial overreach. Um, because the, the question I had is, it, is there anything in the record that demonstrates that any of the carriers that provided the information had no presence here in North Carolina? Um, no, but, and I, and I, you know, that, that raises a question that I, I think is, uh, is worth asking, but I, I think you're kind of coming at it from what I, I think is the wrong angle. I think the state has the burden of proof at a motion to suppress hearing to show that this evidence was obtained lawfully. So I, I think the question is what in the record shows that this search was carried out within North Carolina. Um, and, and there just isn't anything. And I, I think, you know, to the extent that the state, these, these companies may do business in North Carolina, I'm not sure that that's enough. Um, and if you'll forgive me for going outside of the record um, a little bit here, I mean, I, I've looked up Verizon and where do they accept service of search warrants and it looks like it's, you mail it up to somebody in New Jersey. Now again, that's outside of the record, and I submit that that's the state's fault because we don't know, they didn't prove anything about where this search was carried out. But, but wouldn't um, it be, because you can imagine, for example, if there was a bank, um, and I know we often look to the financial records because that was with a lot of the development of this area, you know, we were imagining this third-party searches that come in the, in the bank records context, but you can imagine um, that there's, uh, a suspect who has a banking transaction in California, the bank has a presence here, and it would seem to me to be permissible to get a, a search warrant and tell the company, provide all the records in your possession. And it may be that the record was generated by some transaction in California, but the bank itself, which is here in North Carolina, has a record, and it could turn it over, and I'm trying to see if there's some analogy here to the context of this data that exists with these 
you know, cellular telephone companies and in a similar way, that it maybe it's, um, the information is generated in this trek across the country, but the company has it, the company's presence in North Carolina, and so can be compelled to turn it over. Um, right, and, and you'll have to forgive me, I don't know a whole lot about how the bank uh, sort of search warrant uh, would be carried out, but I, I wonder if you would have to get a search warrant from the state where the bank is actually located to do that, or if you're getting a subpoena to subpoena records, do you get the subpoena, say, from California uh, to serve it on their office there? Because one of the things we don't know is who has these records? Who, who's actually complying with this order? I mean, sure, Verizon, and again, we don't know it was Verizon in this case, but just to pick you know, a big carrier, they've got stores all over the state, but I don't know that Detective Wink got this order and walked down and handed it to the person behind the register at the Verizon store. Like presumably it was sent to a compliance officer or something. And the way this search was carried out, I again, we don't know, but it seems that some person somewhere flipped a switch or you know typed some things into a computer that started transmitting this data on from the carrier to Detective Wink. And we don't know who that person is. And if that person refused to comply, with this order, then who would force them to comply? And I think these are important questions, and it's not as simple as saying, well, there's a Verizon store down the street, so we got them. Um, but again, you know, to the extent that there are any questions about how this happened and was this okay, I, I think it's the state's burden to prove that in a motion to suppress, and we have to speculate because there just wasn't anything shown here. Um, um, the pen register statutes are the other statutes that the order claims justify this search. Um, and they don't. Uh, and I know the state wants to brush this argument off as maybe an inconsequential slip of the tongue. They say that Detective Wink was speaking colloquially when he referred to having a pen register that gave him location data. Um, but, but I think that's dead wrong. I think if you look at the record in this case, it was more than just an inadvertent sort of misstatement. Um, and if nothing else, uh, it's probably important for us to clarify for you know, everyone moving forward that a pen register cannot and may not provide location data. All a pen register can do is tell you which numbers a particular phone called, and the corresponding trap and trace can tell you which numbers called in. That's it. And you don't need probable cause for those. Um, but in this case, we have an officer who repeatedly describes having a pen register that gives him location data. And if we take him at his word that that's what it was, it was an illegal pen register. But he wasn't alone. The ADA characterized it this way. And importantly, the order orders the installation of a pen register and trap and trace device pursuant to our state statutes to, quote, determine the location of the aforementioned target cellular number slash device. Um, and so the order is also unlawful. And then finally, at the hearing on the motion to suppress, the, the judge chose to review the order uh, for reasonable suspicion rather than for probable cause. After a discussion of, of Carpenter and whether it applies, the judge says, but that's only historical data. That's not registers. Um, so this confusion about what a pen register is, what kind of data you can get with it, and what standard you, of proof you have to, to meet to get one, um, it was it was dispositive below, and it, it's very important. Um, 
to note, I think it's relevant both to whether the good faith exception might apply, to think that Detective Wink believed he was authorized to do this under his complete misinterpretation of a, an unambiguous statute, but um, it also just goes to show that none of the statutes that the order cites to sort of justify its existence do. Um, now, assuming you disagree and you think that the Superior Court judge who issued this order was allowed to, there's still a problem because uh, this search needed to be supported by a warrant and probable cause. Or, so before you get there, just one last question about sure. that aspect then. So um, if we agreed with you about that, what, um, un under state law, what would the mechanism be if investigators here in North Carolina wanted evidence, they knew there was a major drug trafficking transaction that would be occurring in California, there was a suspect that they knew would be leaving North Carolina, and they believe traveling to that drug transaction in California, they want to acquire the information from that suspect's cellular telephone to have that evidence to use, you know, to bring charges. What What is the vehicle that you'd use in North Carolina then to do that? Well, um, you know, forgive me, I'm not a federal law enforcement agent. I don't know how they would like to go about it, but I think they're one of the places you could look to see, right? I mean, interstate crime, I, I think there's a whole division of government sort of exists to, to regulate that. And I believe um, that federal law enforcement, the DEA, the FBI, CBP, if you're near a border, I guess, um, they all can work with local law enforcement to sort of carry out these goals. Um, and I also think that, you know, if you read the, the, the federal statute, um, perhaps I could have gotten this warrant uh, or this order from a federal magistrate. Um, and, you know, I don't know if a deputy can go to a federal magistrate and ask for a warrant, but I believe they can, you know, liaise, have liaisons with federal agencies. I just don't think that there's anything, right, like the fear that the state seems to have that if we don't allow North Carolina judges to order searches to be conducted out of state, well then interstate drug crime is gonna run rampant. And it's, it's a bit much, right, I mean, again, there, there are people whose whole job, I think, is, is to do that. Um, and the General Assembly, since they decide what the authority of the Superior Court judge is, they presumably could say, and you can also, uh, you know, enter orders pursuant to the Stored Communications Act. Um, now, you know, I think it would be a problem for down the road whether somebody in California who decided they didn't want to comply with that would say there's a problem there, but, um, Certainly the problem we're pointing out here could be fixed, I think, in any number of ways. Um, so so w one last question. Oh, if sure. there was no statute about pen registers and trap and trade, and, but, then, but everything else in this case happened the same way, does that change your argument? If you have the Stored Communications Act, no state law, does that change your argument? Um, no, I think for a couple of reasons, and I hope I can get this all out. I mean, first, uh, the Carpenter um, talks about pen registers too. It's not just our state statute, um, and Carpenter makes clear that a pen register is, you know, only tells you what phone numbers someone called, and uh, it doesn't require a probable cause. Um, but, but you know, the the definition of pen register is sort of, I think, known beyond just what our statutes are, but. I don't think 
to the extent that we're talking about an extra jurisdictional search, I don't think the lack of a pen register statute or the absence of, of one in North Carolina would, would save this. Right? I, I think what, what we're saying is that there needs to be some authorization either in our, our constitution or from our general assembly for superior court judges to reach outside of the state. And to my knowledge, as of yet, they don't have that. Everything that, that we've seen shows a limitation uh, to within the confines of the state. Now, if we were talking about a search that was affected entirely within the state, you know, then it, I think you know, the answer is get a warrant. Get, get a warrant based on probable cause. Um, and then it seems pretty clear that you would be entitled to you know, whatever you want. Again, but if this was carried out within the state. Um, uh, so, um, if, if you, you know, if you don't agree with all of that and you think that they could enter this order, we have to, it has to be based on probable cause. And there, Carpenter is crystal clear that searches for historical location data must be based on, on probable cause. And, and here, this order is a, an order compelling a search for historical location data. It's, it's right there in the order. Give us 30 days of data from before the entry of this order. Now it also orders 30 days past, uh, you know, sort of forward looking. But under Perry, the way this court categorized the data there, that's also historical data. Um, if you look at the order in Perry, which this court held was historical, and you look at the order here, they describe the data indistinguishably. Um, and then if you look beyond just what the search uh, order directs, you know, officers to be able to get, the, uh, the way the officers describe the order, or the, the data that they're getting, it's, it's the same. Um, there's no meaningful distinction between what this court held in Perry was historical data and what we have here. Um, so it had to have been, uh, this order had to have been based on probable cause. Um, it had to have been the equivalent of a warrant. Um, but, you know, again, and I feel like I'm going to be saying but again, even if <laughs> a lot mm -hmm. in this argument, but even if you think that the data here was real time, we still need probable cause. Um, because Carpenter applies to real time data. Um, it, it doesn't say that it does, but, but there is no good faith understanding of Carpenter that would suggest that it doesn't. They listed several privacy interests that people have in their data when they concluded that there was a reasonable expectation of privacy in historical data. And none of those interests are any less important, or any less interesting uh, when you're talking about real-time data. Some, there are some federal courts that have disagreed with you about that, though, right? Um, maybe, but the, the Supreme Court, well, about, about the fact that these interests, I, about whether I, Carpenter I don't, applies to real time is what I, 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 I don't know. Um, I haven't seen those. Uh, I, w with respect to them, I think they're wrong. I mean, I just don't see how you can say that if I have an interest in, uh, an expectation of privacy in where I was for the last seven days, that I don't also have an expectation of privacy in where I'm going to be for the next seven days. I mean, one of the reasons for this is that I mean, real-time data and historical data are the same thing. The only thing that changes, the only thing that's different between one of those is, and the other is, is when the observer is, is looking at the data. Right? I mean, all real-time data 
will eventually become historical data just by the passage of time. Nothing about the data changes. And if you were to say that you could get real-time data based only on a reasonable suspicion or some standard less than probable cause, well, then you'd give law enforcement a way to end run around Carpenter. And look at what happened here. If you call the data here, or at least part of it, real-time data here, they're getting emails every 15 minutes from a service provider and it's going into a spreadsheet. And they monitor that for 30 days. Well, on day 30, they've got 30 days of historical data that they have and they didn't have probable cause to get it. And so not only, I don't know, philosophically, there's not really any difference between real-time and historical data, but practically, to make that distinction, um, is sort of splitting hairs in a way that I don't think the court wants to do uh, with Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Um, I think the reason I know I'm this is I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I think we're ahead in your argument, but the the reason I ask that is if we conclude that we do have to make some sort of good faith exception analysis, Carpenter itself didn't answer the question. So uh, we may hear from your friend for the state that you know that you know we're in good faith exception territory here because there, um, you know, there isn't a case that says that this is prohibited. Right. I mean, I think uh, there's a couple of reasons. You probably know what I'm going to say already, but um, I mean, it wasn't, good faith wasn't raised below, so I think the states waived that. But I think that the, the application here is so devoid of probable cause. I mean, it, I think it's devoid of even enough to give rise to a reasonable suspicion. I think the, the application is, is nothing. The, the information they gave is, is so deficient that, that even if it were reasonable for them to believe they only needed a reasonable suspicion, um, it, it doesn't uh, merit uh, the good faith exception under Leon. And then also, we don't have a state good faith exception. Um, maybe we'll want to talk about that <laughs> um, in a minute. Um, but there, there is another reason uh, that probable cause should be required for this order, and that's what just, uh, excuse me, Justice Gorsuch talks about in his dissent in Carpenter, which there's a, a very real sense in which this was a trespass onto the private property of Mr. Rogers. They, through some means, turned his private property, his phone, against him to be used as a surveillance device to betray his location to third parties, to law enforcement, without his knowledge and without his consent. And for that reason as well, we should consider, uh, we should require probable cause. So whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy um, or whether it's a trespass. Um, and, and there wasn't probable cause. Um, I know I'm getting kind of short here, so I'm going to rely mostly on, on the briefing here. But I don't, I don't think there is even a reasonable suspicion if, if that's the, the standard that we think should apply. I mean. This was an anonymous tip with no corroboration of anything other than, yeah, this is the guy, here's a picture, and that's his phone number. Um, you look at the four corners. But it was, in fact, uh, the defendant, the picture, and the phone number that the source provided was, in fact, the correct phone number for that person. I, the source identified in the photograph, right? I, I believe so, but I think under Johnson, those are just merely identifying characteristics, and that's not enough to save just a you know, an anonymous tip that doesn't give us anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there wasn't a, 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 a statement against penal interest. Um, you know, having a conversation about the sale of drugs, 
we're doing that right now. We're talking about drug trafficking. I mean, without more, that's, that's nothing. Um, we don't know the address that was actually uh, uh, searched. We don't know where this stuff happened. We don't, there's nothing showing that this information wasn't stale. All of the information is Detective Wink saying, this is when the CS told me this information and not when the CS learned it. Um, and we've talked about in the brief why that's not okay. So briefly, um, the good faith exception should not apply to save this. Uh, it wasn't preserved. Uh, the order is so lacking in indicia of probable cause or even a reasonable suspicion. But also, to get back to what I was getting at earlier, I, I don't know that you can say that there's a good faith, um, that the officer acted in good faith that he only needed a reasonable suspicion because the order says probable cause. I mean, they seem to, to know that they, or at least think that they needed probable cause at the order stage. It wasn't until the hearing stage where they sort of changed their story on that. But also, you have an officer getting location data through a pen register that he got from an order from the Superior Court judge that tells him that the United States Secret Service and the Nebraska State Police are going to help him with it. I mean, it, there, there cannot be good faith in, in carrying out this search pursuant to this order. Can I ask one quick question about the preservation issue? So, <laughs> of course. Uh, is, um, I guess let me put it this way. It, you know, the state prevailed and when, in that argument below. I mean, they have a responsibility to raise the good faith exception as a sort of alternative basis. I mean, I can see that argument if there was some prejudice to your client, some evidence that might have been introduced at a suppression hearing that never got introduced because, you know, no knowledge that good faith is at issue. But do you need something like that, or is it something the state in every case has to sort of stick in there in their arguments? Um, I, I believe that they can waive it by not making it under green, but um, I, don't, I don't really have a much better answer um, for you at this point. Um, and, and then finally, even if the but, but even if you think that the federal good faith exception saves us, the objection was preserved under the state constitution as well, and Carter has not been overruled. Um, and this court, as it was an elder, is bound by Carter, and there is no state good faith exception. Um, your Honors, the Supreme Court recognized this in Carpenter, that as subtler and more far-reaching means of invading privacy become available to the government, it's the, the, the duty of this court to ensure that the progress of science doesn't erode the protections of the Fourth Amendment. And the order here and the state's arguments in favor of it utterly defy that obligation. And so we ask that you stop that erosion. Um, hold that the trial court erred by denying the motion to suppress. And unless there are further questions, I'll reserve what I have left of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Good morning, Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court. My name is Caden Hayes. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I'm representing the state in this matter. As your honors are well aware, there are two issues here today, whether the warrant or the order was facially valid and whether it needed to be supported by probable cause, and if so, was it? And I want to 
Before I dive into the facial validity issue, I want to briefly address defendant's contention in his briefs and here today that we could have just gone to a federal judge. The short answer is we can't. The federal rules of criminal procedure clearly say that only federal government attorneys or federal law enforcement agents can petition for a search warrant. And so we are neither of those things. So with that out of the way, I want to talk more about the text of 15A273, our state warrant statute, and the SCA itself. The SCA says that a court of competent jurisdiction, so meaning a court that can issue search warrants in general, may issue SCA orders to obtain CSLI data and other types, unless prohibited by state law. Now, this is important because defendant is seeking to turn this into a almost unless or, or with the permission of also state law, which is an important distinction. Prohibited means a conflict or um, some sort of blocking by state law. In effect, I envision it as the inverting of the supremacy clause. And we don't have that here. As defendant points out, 15A243, our state warrant statute, says that a statewide search warrant may be issued by, and it issues a number of different judicial officials. That is not exclusive power. That is just a statewide search warrant may be issued. This can be read, as can the SCA, to live in harmony with one another and permit the order that we have here. And also, even if we were to say that there were some restrictions in state law, some prohibition, it miscomprehends how or what data we're looking for here. Data is not local to where it is generated. He could have been in California, and the data would ping up to some server cell tower there, and who knows where the data would go at that point? What server around the world would house it, and it would bounce around as it's being used for commercial purposes? And eventually, it would end up in North Carolina. And if we're supposed to sit there with a warrant, wait until the ones and zeros cross the line into state of North Carolina and then grab it. I mean, this is kind of a, an it's an impossible position. And it's an impossible position for Verizon or whatever the cell phone company um, is being served with to uh, respond to. And defendant points out, I guess, I'm not aware of this, but I guess Verizon needed to send um, uh, warrants to, I guess, one of their headquarters. But that doesn't defeat this issue here even if we were to go to Verizon, the Verizon store across the street, and serve them with this SEO, it would inevitably go to their general counsel's office, who would then route it to some other departments, and it would get routed around and around until eventually we have the information we got here. By just asking the state or any government agency under the SCA to first mail it to their headquarters just as a convenience sake for them, and it shouldn't really weigh into this analysis here. Um, so, moving on now to the definitional argument. So what about your, your friend from the defendant says, we don't know that the carriers that provided the information have a presence in North Carolina, and that it was the state's burden to put all that information into the record. What, what's your response to that? I think it's a reasonable assumption to say that whatever cell phone provider that did provide this information is in North Carolina. Indeed, I'm, I'm almost certain all of those do. And also, the defendant himself is a native of North Carolina, so presumably he would have gotten a cell phone plan at a store somewhere nearby, or at least in the state of North Carolina. So I don't think that cuts in favor of the defendant either. I think what we have here is, as the defendant said in his argument today, we have to look at who is complying, and the cell phone company, whichever one it may be, was forced to comply in the state of North Carolina, taking the data and handing it over to police. Um, and I, I want to move now onto the 
definitional argument, his pin register discussion about whether a pin register can authorize real-time CSLI. Uh, and as stated in the brief, the statute's definition do seem to preclude um, the use of a pin register by itself to obtain CSLI data. But the order included more than just a pin register. It as asked for, among other things, prospective CSLI data for a period of 30 days, and that's governed by the SCA exclusively. And I want to briefly point out again, as noted in the state's brief, defendant didn't raise this definitional argument below, and he doesn't allege plain error in his brief now. So the issue is also waived at the outset. Um, but in any event, the SCA governs this, uh, and, I, and I think the Detective Wink's statements on the stand saying pin register was more of a colloquial reference to the whole order, of, to the, the operation to obtain that information, not a looking into the state statute and saying, well, the pin register let me do this, and then the prospective CSLI did this, and then this did that. It's, it's just one omnibus order um, that the detective implemented and got the information from. And so um, defendant's definitional argument is, is without merit. And now I, I, I want to say um, we move on to the kind of probable cause analysis, which I imagine will take up the bulk of our time here. There, Carp uh, defendant points out there's Carpenter, and indeed there is. But Carpenter's not binding. I want to briefly say this data is real time. Yes, this court in Perry said that a five to seven minute delay between the routing of the information from the phone to the cell phone provider to the officer was sufficient to render it historical. But there is no testimony below of any delay. The only testimony we have is that every 15 minutes, Detective Wank or, or somebody in the law enforcement received the coordinates of the phone at that exact moment. There's no indication of delay, much less five to seven minutes worth, as in Perry. So this what is- What about the fact that it was also asked for the prior 30 days? Certainly, Your Honor. So there, it did ask for that. However, in the suppression hearing below, Detective Wank stated that they used no historical data, and it doesn't look like using the dates that they gave in the record in that big spreadsheet of them all. It starts with when they got the order, and then continues on. So you said that he said he didn't use any of that. Does that make a difference? That well, he didn't, like if they got it and they're like, eh, we don't need that, we're just going to use this. As far as we know, Your Honor, there, there was no obtaining of historical records. My understanding is the information in the record is all that law enforcement obtained under the CSLI, or sorry, under that order, because we have the pin register information and trap and trace phone numbers, and we have this kind of real-time CSLI. There, there was no historical CSLI gathered insofar as I can tell from the record or, or um, discuss below. And so with that, Carpenter isn't binding. It, it expressly said we do not rule upon real-time CSLI or any other kind of tangential issues. And defendant contends that real-time and historical must be the same because real-time eventually becomes historical. But that misses an important point. In this case, the New Hanover police could have hired a police officer and paid him overtime to drive across the country following the defendant and then watch him drive back. And we wouldn't be here today. There'd be no discussion about Fourth Amendment implications because as Knott's made clear, you don't have a right to privacy on your traveling on the road. But because law enforcement utilized a different technique to get the same information, here we are, which kind of is a bit of a weird result. And, and that's important because Carpenter was a not, as I mentioned, it was a narrow case. But by its own language, it was supposed to, it, it, it 
threw in the third-party doctrine as a kind of factor and said that because of historical CS law, it just barely gets above what the third-party doctrine says. And indeed, there is, um, uh, in the opinion, there was discussion about how the historical CSLI almost gives a superpower to the police. They can know, they, they're sorry, they won't know a defendant is the defendant until years later, and then they can just go to a cell phone provider, say, hey, I want this information for where this person was three years ago, and that's it. I mean, that is huge. That has never been available to police before. And it can't be done by other traditional surveillance techniques. Whereas here, you can. They could have hired a police officer and had him drive all the way out there and had him follow all the way back. But they chose not to for various, I'm sure, economic reasons. And so we shouldn't be throwing out the evidence based on that. Um, so Carpenter isn't binding. And it really isn't as applicable to this case as defendant wants to make it out to be. Um, and indeed, I think there's been some important developments since Carpenter that further call into question the straight analog of, of going from historical to present. Um, indeed, the government, since Carpenter, has begun purchasing data from Verizon or whatever the law, uh, sorry, the cell phone provider is. They'll purchase the data, and then they will use it in their investigations. And there has, as far as I know, not been any implications of Fourth Amendment interests. And so it's kind of a, again, another weird result that the government can pay $100 to Verizon, get this data, but they can't get it via a, a search warrant, or sorry, uh, via an SCA order. It, it's just kind of a lot of issues here that are easily resolved by just saying this was a, uh, just, it was, it was, doesn't impinge upon the Fourth Amendment, him traveling from New Hanover to Hayward, California and back, because the officer could have done it in a typical traditional surveillance technique. And so we have um, no Fourth Amendment implications here, um, and so there only needs to be reasonable suspicion. And the defendant doesn't contest reasonable suspicion in his brief, I, I guess he does now, um, but as a preliminary note, reasonable suspicion was met. There's a number of cases from this authority and also um, our Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court detailing the standard. Um, it's just specific, articulable facts. And what we have here is a CS who goes to Detective Wink and says, hey, I've been talking with this guy who's a, who's a black male and is just trafficking and distributing large quantities of cocaine. He has it at his house. And then a month later, CS goes back and says, hey, he's about to travel to Hayward, California. He's going to buy more drugs, and he's going to bring them back to the state of North Carolina to traffic. And so that is reasonable suspicion. Those are specific, articulable facts that he is going to be going to purchase drugs, and then he will be coming back with them. So we, we, we've met a reasonable suspicion burden. But even if we didn't need to get to reasonable suspicion, and sorry, let me quickly also say, Ruling today that reasonable suspicion was all that was required, there was no Fourth Amendment interest. There are, as cited in the state's brief, several federal courts that have already concluded that. The EDNC case, I believe, um, U.S. v. Robinson, actually also had a 30-day prospective CSLI order that the court said was permissible even post-Carpenter. So this would not be this court taking a trailblazing new path. It would be an uh, application of Carpenter um, and noting the differences between real-time and historical.
Um, but even if we were, again, as, as my friend says, it's a lot of, but even if we were, um, there was a probable cause supporting this order. As Judge Bell noted in the SCA order himself, and that um, determination is given deference um, under State v. Arrington and Illinois v. Gates, that we need to allow marginal cases, cases that are on the edge, to be given deference to the issuing judge, um, which is a number of reasons is important, but also it, it incentivizes and makes sure the state gets a warrant before taking action, um, which is what they did here. And so we have, again, a CS that goes to an officer and points out um, various admittedly um, broad characteristics about him. He's a black male and trafficking a large amount of cocaine. And they had multiple conversations about purchasing drugs, which is important. Uh, but, defendant wants but just to be clear, the officers, was no, the officer had no prior relationship with the informant for this time, right? My understanding is there was a relationship, at least in the suppression hearing, there was a discussion that he was a known confidential source, but that wasn't contained in the affidavit, so I, I don't reference it here. There was a lot of other information um, as well in there, but um, we, we have a CS who goes to Detective Wink and talks about that he had discussed purchasing drugs from defendants on multiple occasions which is a little more than just saying, hey, you know, do you have cocaine or, or, or something maybe less criminal? You're talking about purchasing drugs frequently or, or at least several times. I mean, this is getting more into statement against penal interest territory uh, as discussed in State v. Hughes than just, well, what we're doing here, I guess, talking about drugs as the defendant points out today. Um, and, but moving beyond that, he identifies the defendant as the photo um, when Detective Wank pulls that up. And then he leaves. A month later, rekindles or, or continues that contact with Detective Wank and says, hey, here's his phone number, which police later confirmed was indeed the defendant's phone number. And he said, hey, he's gonna be traveling to Hayward, California, which is not a city you just pick in California. It's the 34th most populous city. It's not Los Angeles, it's not San Francisco if you're trying to make up a story or, or some sort of deceive police. You have very specific information. You have information that he's gonna be leaving soon. And all of that ends up being accurate. And so that is, when combined together, probable cause, given also the deference to Judge Bell. Um, and I wanna briefly address as well. So just to be clear, like, is it the state's position if, if a warrant application says uh, there's a confidential source who said that this person in this picture lives in that apartment, has this cell phone number, there has drugs in the apartment, that that is probable cause to issue a warrant search the apartment? Well, no, Your Honor. And that gets to my next point about staleness. So it's important to remember this wasn't a search of the house or the car. I mean, the house is the kind of the, the castle doctrine, right? There's so much grand language from the US Supreme Court about how important that is. That wasn't a search of the house. It was a real-time CSLI tracking of the phone across the country and back. So would this kind of vague information from the kind of first part, that July 2007, 2019 conversation, I don't think that would have supported a warrant to search the house. We didn't know where the drugs, when they were there, any other information, as defendant points out in his brief. But it actually, in this case, serves more to say that 
build the credibility of the CS, not only as a statement against penal interest, but also in the way that he's, uh, uh, he's the defendant is actively involved in the drug trade in some way. Um, and it's common sense under uh, State v. Kochetkov, I probably butchered that, but it's kind of common sense inquiry to say that you know, it's reasonable to say he was involved with the drug trade. And then you build on that with the second conversation where they say, hey, he's going to travel to Hayward, California in the next 72 hours, or, or sorry, uh, in the short time. Um, and uh, also importantly, the defendant points out that the phone number is kind of this almost public information. But phone number is not as public as people say it is. I mean, as the defendant kind of points out, it is pretty private, all things considered. I don't give my phone number to many people, and I don't think I'm alone in that. The defendant gave the phone number to the police. If it was the other way around, if police had said, here's this phone number, do you think this is defendants? Certainly maybe that's a little less probative and helpful here. But the inverse is very, very helpful, particularly when considering that it was that phone number that the CS said he was conversing with the defendant to purchase drugs. And so all this kind of builds together to say that we've kind of met probable cause, especially considering the kind of deference that we should be giving to Judge Bell uh, on these, even if we were to say this was a marginal case. Um, so even saying the, that there was probable cause necessary, um, it was met here. And I just, again, briefly want to touch on, defendant kind of argues in a brief that we should remand this to the trial court um, on the issue of reasonable suspicion versus probable cause. And, and that's unnecessary. This court made clear in State v. Gore that a properly supported SCA order is a warrant for purposes of our Constitution. And so concluding that there was probable cause here obviates any need to go back down to the trial court. Um, and so I want to touch on now the good faith exception, Your Honors. There is, um, I, I won't talk about it in the context of federal law. I think um, it's clear that the officers here were acting in good faith with a warrant or at least an SCA order supported by probable cause in executing that. I, I want to focus on the kind of state constitution as this court is well aware of the State v. Carter decision. Um, but it's important to look at it in, in the whole light. State v. Carter at the time, there was a state suppression statute, which we still have. But the way that Carter decided it was that the Constitution, our Constitution, does not require the good faith exception. It did not say that there was no good faith exception possible under our state constitution, which is an important distinction because for the next, and I should say in Carter, they told the legislature, if you want this, you need to put it in. You are the representative of the public. And for 20 odd years, they continued. They did not put a good faith exception into law and we all continued with the Carter decision. But of course, in 2011, there were those amendments to our state suppression statute expressly putting in the good faith exception. Yeah, so Judge Dillon has made this argument. And I guess my question is, which court has the authority to say the good faith exception is back in or it's in now that it wasn't before? Can this court do that, or does it have to be the Supreme Court that then says we invited this from the General Assembly and now they've done it, so we have a good faith exception again? 
Well, I think, Your Honor, this court is perfectly equipped to do that. It wasn't, it wouldn't be this court saying Carter has been abrogated. It would be the legislature by enacting the amendments. They have um, abrogated case law as courts do, or sorry, legislatures do all the time. I, I believe there was a recent um, federal uh, legislation that preempted or abrogated the court's decision in West Virginia v. EPA, the Supreme Court's decision. So that happens quite frequently. And so all this court would be doing is recognizing that that has happened. And there needs to be no discussion about overruling Carter or anything like that, because clearly this court can't do that. Um, instead, it's just recognizing that the good faith exception has been enshrined in state law. Um, I, I wanna also briefly talk on State v. Elder. Um, defendant points out that case, um, which I believe Chief Judge Stroud, you authored, um, which talked about this. Now, the short answer is that provision of the opinion was dicta. The case revolved around a DVPO. The uh, victim filed an ex parte motion for a DVPO and gave some information, which the district court judge granted. And as part of that, checked an additional box that kind of said other and ordered the officers um, issuing the, or, or serving the DVPO to also search the house for guns. Um, and so they did that and they found marijuana and this court held that the district court couldn't do that. And in Leon, when, they, when the federal courts created the good faith exception, they issued a number of kind of, well, exceptions to the exception. One of which, as defendant highlighted in his brief, was, or in his discussions today, was something so lacking in indicia of probable cause. And that's kind of where we were at with Elder. All we had were some ex parte statements made by a victim that weren't really clear, certainly not clear enough to reach a reasonable kind of uh, adjudication of probable cause. So even if this court, in that opinion, an elder was to have said, oh, the good faith exception still is good law, it wouldn't have applied anyway. And so it rendered that provision kind of dicta. Um, and so whereas here we have a um, uh, officers obtaining what functionally is a warrant um, defendant can argue that it wasn't supported by probable cause, but it, it was, at least on its face, seems to be a warrant that permitted this type of real-time CSLI tracking. And they executed it in good faith. There is no indication that there was some binding precedent to the contrary. There was no indication that there was um, a, a lack of uh, probable cause. Um, and so they just did what they were ordered to do. They produced the evidence that was later used to convict the defendant um, and to stop the importation of a large quantity of cocaine. And so, Your Honors, in sum, there is um, no extra jurisdictional issue here. Judge Bell acted within his authority under the SCA, and there's no prohibition against that in state law. He then, um, and, and also defendants waived the kind of definitional arguments, but even if he hadn't, the SCA permits this. Um, and so we end up with um, probable cause. And given the unique situation of this case, probable cause wasn't required. There was no Fourth Amendment search as highlighted in the state's brief and done today. Uh, defendant can take and talk about how Carpenter and historical time are one and the same, but they're not. There are important distinctions, and that's the same reason our U.S. Supreme Court expressly declined to rule on them. And there's been courts around the country that have found real-time CSLI not impinging upon the Fourth Amendment, at least in a sense of 30 days or less. Um, and so 
we're left with satisfaction of the statute, which only requires reasonable suspicion, which the state got. Um, but even if they didn't, we have probable cause in this case, as Judge Bell found out. Um, and the officers, even if throwing out probable cause and saying that it was not met, the officers acted on good faith, something that has since been enshrined into law by our state legislature following Carter. And this court recognizing that, as it's kind of done in, in, in the concurrence that Judge Dietz was discussing and in a footnote um, in uh, State v. Uh, Foster, that's all it's doing is recognizing this exception and then just applying it to the case at hand. Um, so uh, if there, unless there are any other further questions from your honors, the state respectfully asks this court to affirm. Um, I have uh, a lot of points. I'm going to try to get to them uh, pretty quickly. Uh, first, the state says that there's no prohibition against issuing warrants out of state, but our courts have held that orders that are entered without beyond the authority of the person who issues them are invalid. If that's not a prohibition, I'm not sure what is. Um, I, the state talked a lot about this data and how we don't know where it is and who is complying with it, and I think they're they're right that they should have shown us that so that we could figure out how this uh, this order should be reviewed. And since they didn't meet that burden, it should be held against them. Um, they talk about how, yeah, we got an order that, that gave us this data, but we didn't use it. Um, so ignore the fact that the order said we get this. And that's not, I don't think, how you look at a search or, uh, warrant or an order in this case to decide whether a search is okay. You look at what the search you know, is the search that the person is subjected to reasonable? You don't say, well, sure, the order was a general warrant, but, you know, they only got one thing, so we're going to say it was fine. That, that's, that's not how this works. Um, as Carpenter points out, CSLI data is very different than just following someone in a car. Your phone goes with you everywhere. And now the state points at this one part of this data here where it did appear to be following Mr. Rogers on this cross-country road trip, but his phone presumably went with him into bathrooms, and I don't know if he stayed in a hotel, but it would have gone with him there. I mean, the fact that they are singling out only this one portion uh, doesn't save the fact that the search authorized something that was unlawful. Um, uh, I think when they talk about how all of this data was corroborated, uh, or the, the information in the probable cause affidavit, they're sort of putting the cart before the horse. I mean, it seems like they got this order so that they could corroborate the fact that this CS said that he was going to make a trip to Hayward, and that's backward. You corroborate, and then you get the warrant, not the other way around. And I'm not particularly convinced by the fact that they picked a specific city in California means that this is reliable. They, they named a city. That doesn't mean much to me. Um, and the government is purchasing data now. So they say that we should just allow this type of search. But that's exactly what Justice Brandeis was talking about when he was quoted in Carpenter. That's a subtle and far-reaching means of invading privacy that's available to the government. And this court has to stop that in order to preserve the Fourth Amendment. Um, this case isn't marginal. Um, it's not even close. There should be no difference. Um, and you asked, uh, Judge Dietz, I think at one point you were talking about, well, if, if a confidential informant said, this guy that lives in that apartment selling drugs, would that be enough? And I just point out, we don't even have the part 
where he said, this guy lives in that apartment. We don't know where this happened. They, there is no address in this affidavit. I mean, this application is simply devoid of facts. Um, so in total, listening to the state's argument, it, it strikes me that they're arguing based on what they wished the law said and not what it actually says. They wish that Superior Court judges were allowed to order searches to be conducted out of the state, but our General Assembly hasn't given them that authority. They wish that law enforcement could get CSLI data uh, without probable cause. And Carpenter and the reasoning in Carpenter says, of course not. Um, they wish that it made sense um, to only require real-time CSLI for, uh, excuse me, reasonable suspicion for real-time CSLI, and it just doesn't. They wish that the good faith exception would save them, but it doesn't under Leon. And they wish that Carter had been overruled and we had a state good faith exception, but it hasn't. Our courts have continued to protect the integrity of the judiciary rather than protect people who violate the constitutional rights of others. So we ask that you apply the law as it is and not as the state wishes it was and hold that this motion to suppress should have been granted. And if there are no further questions, I think I can stop talking at you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for both of your arguments. Very good. All rise. The session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.